had too many spitballs hitting me in the back of the head. That's why the choir is not allowed to sit up there any longer while we preach. I'm just kidding. It is weird to have somebody feel like there's always someone over your shoulder staring at you. This week we'll be back in Philippians chapter 2. If you were here with us last week, we had uh, Reverend Daryl Goldman joining us, and that was uh, a great treat, I think, uh, to join us for a week and to share God's Word. Uh, This week we'll be in Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30, so if you would, uh, please turn there and then stand with me as we read God's Word. Father God, we pray that you would open our eyes to your truth this morning, that you would allow it to penetrate into our hearts, reveal to us what you would have to say, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. So Paul now has just finished exhorting the church, um, we go back a couple weeks ago, uh, in their lives of selfless service to Christ. We talked about working out their own salvation, about living their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he gave us the example of Jesus. Well, now he is giving us the example of two real, um, not that he wasn't real, two flesh and blood examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. You know, sometimes we can think, okay, there's the example of Jesus. Well, obviously I can never do that. Well, here's Timothy and Epaphroditus. Here are two people that you know, and I am sending them to you. Here are two men that are living their lives worthy of the gospel. They're living out their salvation. They're working it out with fear and trembling. Remember that Paul is in prison here. And he deeply cares about the people of God. The church in Philippi, this is a church that is very near and dear to him. And they've heard about, their, about his plight in Rome. And they're concerned for him. And he is actually also concerned for them. He wants to see them grow and thrive, and he understands, like we read in the previous part of this chapter, that they exist in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. He wants to hear about their successes. He wants to hear about the progress that they're making, their advancement of the kingdom. And yet, because the communication is only by letter, it takes time for news 
to get from one place to another. Now think about this, and it's, it's almost hard to fathom these days, how easy it is to communicate with people all over the world. Um, right now my parents are in Ireland, and they're texting me like crazy because they're like seven hours ahead and they don't remember that like, I have things to do on Sunday morning. You know, they tried to FaceTime me this morning at 6.30. Um, who does that, right? <laughs> but we've got, I've got friends all over the world. Right now, Randy's in Spain. He's posting more pictures on Facebook than he has in his entire life, okay? Uh, communication is so easy. I've got people, I know people in Australia and Botswana and um, Dominican Republic, and, and these people I can, I can interact with instantly if I want to know how they're doing. You know, I can pick up my phone and call somebody. I can look someone face-to-face if I need to hear what's going on in their life. But Paul... That's not the case here. He's got to wait until the, 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 the season is right to send a ship. And even then, at that time, remember, Epaphroditus came to him and almost didn't even make it. But, but I actually do, even though it's easier now to communicate with people than it has ever been, I think we're really bad at communicating with people. Um, I am so bad about not keeping up with people, even though I have, like, no legitimate excuses. You know, if you're not a part of my day-to-day life, if I don't see you every day, then, then I'm probably not thinking about you at all. Like, I, I might not even care about you. Um, it's, 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 you're welcome. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just part of who I am, you know. And, and, and yet we see the example of Paul here, and, and he's the exact opposite. It takes him months to receive a letter from someone or to send a letter, and yet the entire time he's filled with prayers and concern for the people of God. Believers are called to follow the example of Christ and counting others as more significant than ourselves, is what we said, and looking out for the interests of others, but it is difficult. And there's another barrier to this, and we call this is called compassion fatigue. And compassion fatigue is it's, it's when we see too much, when we're overwhelmed by the needs of others. Okay, by definition, it is indifference to charitable appeals on behalf of those who are suffering, experienced as a result of the frequency or number of such appeals. So sometimes we become numb to the needs of others. It's almost like when you watch too much violent television or play too many violent video games and we kind of become desensitized to the violence that we see. And then someone comes in who has never seen that before and they go, oh my gosh. That's that's what it can be like, that we can become desensitized to the needs of others because we constantly hear these needs and we see these needs over and over. And, And amazingly, you know, Hurricane Harvey hit, what, like eight days ago. And yet, for some of us, it feels as if all we've seen on the news is images, uh, videos of, of these things, and we, be, we can become numb to the pain of real people very quickly. It's just natural. But a Christian is called to live a life that's not natural. See, Paul shows here a supernatural amount of concern for the church, and for the health of the church in Philippi. Not only is he writing this letter, which again, this is full of exhortation, it's full of joy, um, it, it's, it's full of encouragement, but he's also sending them two of his most trustworthy partners, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And they're not only going to be able to give them the full report of what's happening with Paul, but Paul also trusts that Timothy will then be able to return to him and let him know what's really going on with those people. 
So this morning we're going to look at these two, at Timothy and Epaphroditus. And the first is Timothy. And and here Paul commends Timothy for his humility and his devotion. His humility and devotion. See, Timothy and Paul have a very special relationship. Remember that Timothy was included back at the beginning of this book. Um, In in chapter 1, verse 1, the the greeting of Philippians comes from Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. And and he's not a co-author necessarily of the book, but he is a co-minister with Paul. This is someone that's very near and dear to Paul's life, and he's an integral part of the ministry in Rome. In fact, Paul even says that he is as a son with a father. He has served, me, served with me in the gospel. This is someone that Paul cares about very deeply because Timothy has been so loyal to him. He has been his spiritual son. And Timothy is still, uh, we, we believe, relatively young here. He's in maybe his early to mid-30s. But he's not a novice at all by any means. He has experience. And he has a heart for people, and he shows an excellence of character. And he stands out from the rest of the Roman church. In fact, Paul even says, I have no one like him. No one like him. This is not hyperbole. Well, what separates Timothy? What makes him stand out from the rest of the church? It's the next line. It says that Timothy will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now remember earlier in the, in the book that Paul has previously said that some are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. That there are people out there that are, that are preaching only for themselves. And Paul doesn't even really get too upset about that because you know, in his mind it doesn't matter what, what the motivation is of the preacher or re- even who the preacher is at all as long as the preacher is preaching the word of God. The power of the gospel doesn't come from the person but it comes from the word. However, Paul also understands these people. He knows that they are not trustworthy. He says that they all seek after their own interests and not the interests of Jesus. They're only in it for themselves. They cannot be trusted. They have a very spotty track record at all. You know, there's this old adage that when you hire someone that's only in it for themselves, you get someone that's only in it for themselves. You know, don't be surprised by a lack of loyalty from people who have never shown loyalty. You know, certain college football programs seem to learn this lesson like every three years, right? Uh, That they they hire someone, bring them in, they're only in it for themselves, and then they'll be gone to the next biggest, next best opportunity. So before entrusting someone with an important task, we have to know them. Not just like in an interview, because anybody can say the right things, as we see here, but how is it being applied? How is it being worked out In their lives? Are they in it to promote themselves and their interests, or are they in it for the Lord? The the things that Paul has been exhorting the Philippian church, they're clearly lacking here in Rome. Okay, they're all looking after their own interests. And and I think that sounds like very familiar to us, doesn't it? You know, we live in a society where, where selfishness is the norm of our culture. And and the scary part about this is not just that they aren't looking out for others, but in doing that, they are not seeking the interests of Jesus. And some of them, and and perhaps maybe most of them, don't even realize that they're doing this. Now, Timothy Keller writes about this type of person, and it's not as if these people have just gone away now. We still exist. 
You know, some of us, we think that we're seeking out after the interests of Jesus, but we're really seeking out after our own interests. Timothy Keller writes in The Reason for God about these type of people. He says they build their sense of worth on their moral and spiritual performance as a kind of resume to present before God and the world. They build their sense of self-worth on their moral and spiritual performance as a resume, resume to present to God and the world. See, there are some people that are doing things because they're trying to earn the favor of God and the world, not because they actually care about doing the work of God. Richard Lovelace describes these type of people in this way. He says that many draw their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce, defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. Somebody that's only in it for themselves has an obsessive desire to be seen as in the right. And they make everything about themselves and their experiences and their work and their time. They have an appetite for justice, but not for mercy. And they show an unwillingness to listen to others. And there's a really fine line here about being concerned even for my own right personal theology and my own right personal salvation. See, sometimes even being concerned with those things can be selfish if we're not first and foremost focused on the glory of God. Now, Leslie Newbegin was a missionary to to India. And he wrote this about the differences that he saw, the, the kind of the the blind spot that he saw in evangelical Christianity. He said, I suddenly saw that someone could see, could use all the language of evangelical Christianity, and yet the center was fundamentally the self, my need for salvation. And God is auxiliary to that. I also saw that quite a lot of evangelical Christianity can easily slip, can become centered in me and my, my need of salvation and not in the glory of God. So so the question becomes, whose glory am I seeking? And whose interests am I seeking? And this is admittedly a very difficult question. The most difficult thing about this is that there are times when I honestly think that I'm seeking after the interests of Jesus, but I'm not actually doing that. See, I'm a very poor evaluator of myself. I always grade myself on a curve. I always give myself the benefit of the doubt. Just to embarrass myself a little bit, I mean, this happens at home with me all the time. How many of you are responsible for the budget in your family? Anybody? Show of hands. Nobody has a budget. Okay. (laughs) Remind me to talk to you after the service about some things. Um, You know, at at home, I'm sort of responsible, and I do, like, the banking stuff, and I know how much money we have, and Megan is usually very blissfully ignorant of any type of those type of concerns. And that's, that's not a slight on hers. It's just that's kind of the roles that we play. Um, and yet if I come home and she's bought something, you know, I ask her like five questions like, well, do we need that? Or did you have a coupon? Is it on sale? And all those things. And, and she's got to kind of justify every purchase to me. And yet I can go out and do something like buy a car and not even tell her about it and just come home with a new car. And she goes, hmm, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a really poor evaluator of myself. But if, if she comes home with like a sweet tea, I flip out about it. Okay. Very poor evaluators of ourselves. I only wish I was joking about those things. (laughs) 
But Paul also knows what it's like personally to live this way. You know, his entire former life, he thought was devoted to God, and yet it was completely antithetical to the cause of Christ. Remember how he started. He was there observing and watching as Stephen is stoned to death, and Paul is approving of this. And he goes out and sets out on a quest to exterminate Christianity before it even begins. And he's sort of responsible for the spread of Christianity out of Jerusalem as he's going and hunting down people in the name of God. He does these things. So Paul gets it. He understands and he knows that we can be serving our own interests but thinking that we're serving the interests of the Lord. So we must be open-handed in regards to our Christian service because God may have plans that are very different than the plans that we have for ourselves. We see a great example of this in the next illustration that Paul gives us in the person of Epaphroditus. See, now, now like Timothy, Epaphroditus is a person that is descri- described in glowing terms. Okay, Paul says of him that he is my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to all of my needs. We, we hear this and we read this and we think, well, gosh, this must be some really important person. But the commentator R. Kent Hughes writes this about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a layman whom we never would have heard of if it were not for Paul's brief reference here. Epaphroditus served in no public capacity. He did not shepherd a flock like, like Timothy did. He did not take the gospel to an unreached area. He did not receive special revelation, and, and he wrote nothing. Okay, but what did he do? Well, despite an illness, Epaphroditus faithfully delivered a collection from the Philippian church that they had sent to Paul when they heard that he was in prison. Remember that at this time, Paul was under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard, and yet he is responsible for taking care of his own basic needs. They don't provide him meals. They don't provide him with anything. And so he, he is uh, completely at the mercy of those who have heard about his plight and will, and will help to take care of him. And that's what the Philippian church has done. They've, they've heard about Paul's plight, and they sent Epaphroditus. They sent him with some funds, and they sent him with the mission that you are going to take care of Paul. And yet on his way, Epaphroditus gets sick. You know, we're now into a new, the new, uh, we're now about a month into the school year here. And um, I think our preschool has been hit with like every stomach bug, hand, foot, mouth, all of these things. You know, everybody goes away over the summer and they catch all these great new germs and they want to get together and pass them all out um, with each other. I think it happens pretty much everywhere. And it's usually nothing too serious, but Epaphroditus here, he's not just a little sick. He was dangerously sick. Paul says that he was near to the point of death. And remember, again, back in this time, uh, when there's no such thing as penicillin and no such thing as antibiotic, it doesn't take a whole lot for some minor illness to become very seriously very quickly. It was not common in this day for people to get very sick and then get better. You've seen the Monty Python skit, right, with the Black Plague, the guy, I'm not quite dead yet, you know. Um, People didn't recover from illnesses like they do today. And yet, despite his own serious condition, Epaphroditus is more concerned about his church than himself. 
The word, we, we hear the, see this word that he's distressed. And he's not distressed because of his own sickness, but he's distressed because his church had heard that he was sick. The only other time that we find this Greek word here, which is um, ademneo, the only other time that we find this word for distressed is we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's there and he's, he's so distraught, uh, Mark, in Mark and Matthew, Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 34, it says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. You know, Jesus is so distressed in the garden that it brings him to the point of sweating blood. That's how concerned Epaphroditus is that his church believes that he is seriously ill. And Paul now is urging the church to take care of Epaphroditus, to receive him as one worthy of great commendation. See, he's, but Epaphroditus is not like Timothy. He's not an upfront person. He's not a teacher, he's not a preacher, but he is committed to the Lord and to Paul. He is a worthy laborer of the gospel. Now, who do we look up to? I I, I saw this, there was a recent survey done um, of, of what do kids want to be when they grow up. I bet you'll never guess the number one response. YouTube star, number one. Number two, blogger, uh, musician, actor, filmmaker, doctor, TV host, athlete, teacher, writer, lawyer, model. Who do we want to be when we grow up? Well, we want to be somebody. We want to be somebody that everybody else looks to. We want to be somebody that everyone else knows. We want to be in the public eye. Even as a Christian, we do the same thing, I think. We look up to people that are like public Christians. Ben quoted from uh, Pastor John Piper, who's also one of my favorite pastors as well. And, and I love guys like Timothy Keller and, and Matt Chandler and Francis Chan and, and Pastor Randy. And not that any of these people are bad or immoral. But often we look to these people that have very public gifts and roles. And then we get disappointed or jealous when we don't have those same gifts. So many people get discouraged because they think that just because they're not gifted in a public way, that they can't be a part of the kingdom of God. And maybe we just don't do a very good job of communicating this, that there are so many roles and needs that are just as integral to the body of Christ as there are of a pastor or a teacher. Just in this body, we have people serving as Sunday school teachers, on ministry committees, providing meals, on missions teams, building projects, going into prisons, writing letters of encouragement, helping with organization and administrative duties, writing checks to fund ministries all over the city, visiting the sick and the lonely, and the list goes on and on. See, we don't need more pastors. Well, we kind of do, but if that's not your gift, then we don't need you in that role. But we need people to fulfill the the roles that the Lord has given to them. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3 through 8, Paul kind of expands on this a little bit. He says, For by grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have, have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. See, not everyone has the same gifts. We don't all serve the same function. And in fact, I think what would happen if we did, there was a story about a church that was kind of going through a split and they had each chosen uh, Half the group really liked one pastor, half the group liked the other pastor, and it finally came to a head on one Sunday morning when you had two pastors simultaneously preaching in the pulpit to two parts of the church. You can imagine what that was like. It was mayhem. It was a circus. And James even says that not many of you brothers should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. See, when Jesus was traveling around with his disciples teaching and preaching in different places. He saw needs everywhere that he went. In Matthew 9, 35, he, uh, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, we don't necessarily need more upfront public people as part of this laboring crew, but we do need more workers, more laborers. You know, we need people that are willing to get down into the trenches. We need people that are willing to get down and dig the trenches. We need those who prove faithful in the small things with the gifts and the skills which they have been entrusted with. So the church needs more laborers of every single kind. And that's why Paul is sending both Epaphroditus and Timothy. They have different gifts and different skills, and yet they complement each other. And they serve different purposes, but they're both working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They're both putting others before themselves, and they're both worthy of being looked at as real examples of what it looks like to live out a life of a Christian. Regardless of our gifts, we should all strive to hear the words of Jesus at the end of our lives from Matthew 25, where he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Will we commit to his work in whatever form that he would have us do it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for the example that you give us in Timothy and Epaphroditus. These two men who faithfully served you and were gifted in, in separate ways, and yet, Lord, they, they, they were up to the task. Lord, they worked out their salvation. They were reliant on you for every single part of who they were. Lord, I can, we confess that at times we, we might get jealous or, or, or a little bitter, Father, that you haven't gifted us in the way that we might like to be gifted. But Father, for those who are in Christ, you have gifted all of us. Lord, we each have a 
individual role to play. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to what that may be. Forgive us for the times when we are only in it for ourselves. And allow us to seek you and you alone and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.